We're going to be reading from Lord's Day 32 in the back of our little liturgical forms book here. Page 237. 237. I'll read the question if you'd respond by reading the answer corporately. I'm told that those who listen online have a hard time hearing you read the answer, so I'm admonishing you for their benefit. Confess boldly. Lord's Day 32, question and answer 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us, Can can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways? Let us turn in our Bibles at this time to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I'm going to read the entire chapter, all 21 verses. Please give attention to the reading of God's word. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and and perfect will of God. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. If prophesying, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, He who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. 
be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things. But associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil, having regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And thus concludes the reading of God's word. I begin this evening with a question. Why did the Apostle Paul wait until chapter 12 to say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you should present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. Then he talks about spiritual spiritual gifts, and then he goes on to talk about He applies the law, the third use of the law to the Christian, which kind of answers my question there. Why does he begin? Why doesn't he begin with this? Well, the book of Romans is a systematic presentation of the Christian faith, more so than any other book probably in the Bible, in terms of just presenting the Christian faith. And the Apostle Paul, very early on in the first chapter, gives us the thesis for his book, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in the gospel the the righteousness of God is revealed, as is written, the just shall live by faith. This thesis dictates how Paul goes about writing this book. He's writing this book to unpack and explain this gospel that he's not ashamed of. And our catechism actually comes from the very structure of the book of Romans, because after the Apostle Paul introduces his thesis and he sets things up, then he applies the law to the Jews, and he exposes the Jewish community, and he turns the table on them, and then he, he applies the law to, to, the, to the Gentiles and all men. And in chapter 3, he, he goes through all of humanity, and he just basically undresses humanity, starting with the head, the lips, he begins with the feet, are quick to shed blood, and he just goes through the whole human body. And he, un, he, he, he indicts all, all, all of our instruments, our mouths, our heads, all of us, our hearts. 
And he says there's no fear of God. There's no fear of God. And after that, he says that under the law, every mouth will be silenced. And what does that mean? When you have been confronted with your guilt, with your sin, and you're in a court of law, you have a lawyer, and the lawyer representing you, and you make a plea, I plead not guilty. Or if you plead guilty, well, that's kind of the end. But if you plead not guilty, you have a lawyer representing, and he makes this case in your defense, defending you. The whole point here is, is under the law in God's courtroom, your lawyer has nothing to say in your defense. Your mouth is silenced because you have no defense. You're guilty. And you can't appeal to a higher court because there is no higher court than heaven's court. And you're before a judge who knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the thoughts you think before you think them. He knew what you were going to think before he created you. He knows all things. There's no such thing as a stone that's not been turned over. He knows everything. There's no place to hide. There's no defense. Every mouth has been silenced. You're guilty. You know it. All creation knows it. God knows it. And you stand before his court and every mouth will be silenced. No defense. Now, that we, know, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Think about that. All the unbelieving world, guilty before God with no defense. Therefore, the deeds of the law, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's a very important statement because that's the first use of the law. By the law is the knowledge of sin. We, in our tradition, which I believe is biblically true in terms of making this observation from Scripture, we distinguish the first, second, and third use of the law. And Paul right here is telling us this is the first use of the law. The first thing in terms of function that the law does is it confronts you, it shows you that you're guilty, and through this there's a crushing, and you sense the weight of your sin, the weight of your guilt, and your mouth is silenced. It should be. Now, a lot of us want to justify ourselves. We want to rationalize. In our, but when you truly are confronted with the weight of the law and God's authority, you recognize, I have no defense. I'm guilty. And therefore, the only place you can go in terms of a refuge is Jesus Christ. God himself is the one that provides us with salvation in what we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed. Conceived by the Holy Spirit. Born of a woman under the law. Why? So that as your substitute, in your place, he might live the perfect life that no man has ever lived under the law. That he might satisfy every righteous demand regarding his obedience and the law recognizes his righteousness. Yes, I accept it as perfect. It's good. I'm satisfied. But he also then, I mean, we have his passive obedience and we have his active obedience. His passive obedience has to do with the fact that he has suffered. He suffered in our place in terms of the penalty of sin. 
His active obedience means by what he's actually done, the way that he lived his life, all God's law is satisfied. So in terms of negatively, in terms of suffering, the guilt of our sin, the penalty of sin, he pays the debt of sin through the shedding of his blood, his death. He's obedient unto death. Also, though, satisfying the righteous demands of the law through his active obedience. He's not just a blank slate. He actually presents a perfect life that God's law looks upon and says, applauds. Yes, I recognize. This is perfect. And that's what God's law demands. Absolute perfection. And Jesus Christ is the only one that provides it. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, no flesh will be justified in God's sight by the deeds of the law. Now, there's a lot of people who are justified in the sight of men. But men are completely distorted. They have no sense of justice. I mean, we have some sense, but it's so quickly distorted. Even what we think is fair isn't always fair. We just, we're not God. We view everything through the lens of our fallen state. Now, why am I spending all this time on this? Because you can't appreciate how good the good news is until you appreciate how bad the bad news is. First, you have to understand how bad the bad news really is. There's that sense of, I have nowhere to go. My resources, the resources of my family, I can't write the check. I can't pay the doctor. I can't pay the electric bill. I can't pay the heating bill. I can't pay the mortgage. I can't pay, and, and, and the one demanding payment is God. And the response of the law to sin is condemnation. It's not probation. It's not time out. Go sit in the corner. It's not a good spanking. It's eternal damnation. The wages of sin is death for all of eternity. And until you understand how bad the bad news is, the weight of this You'll never appreciate the good news for what it really is. That in Christ you have a refuge. You will never be judged for your sin. Think about you at your very worst. Think about some of the things you have said and thought. Think of you at your absolute worst. You will never be punished. You will never face the wrath of God for your thoughts, your words, and your deeds, ultimately. Because Christ has paid the debt. And he's clothed you with his righteousness. Which is why the Lord pronounces you in heaven's courtroom. This is the doctrine of justification. He pronounces you justified. Even while you're still struggling with your sin. And that's why the Apostle Paul waits till chapter 12. He has to wait till chapter 12 because he has to lay this foundation of the bad news and then he's going to lay a foundation in terms of the gospel and the mediation of Christ and the good news. And after then we understand the grammar of the gospel. I like that language. I don't know where I got that, but I got it somewhere. I'm not, it didn't originate with me and I'd love to give credit to somebody and whoever it is, you're wonderful. Whoever you are out there. 
the grammar of the gospel. Maybe it's Calvin, who knows? I've still stuffed from Calvin throughout my life. The grammar of the gospel. Until you understand the grammar of the gospel, you can't say therefore. You can't say therefore, I beseech you to live as a living sacrifice. Because a living sacrifice, and what the Lord is beseeching us to do here, is because you are so blessed, because you've been grafted into Christ, because of what you possess in Christ, now this is how I want you to live. And he has this whole section talking about gifts, and you notice all these gifts are ultimately given to individuals within the body of Christ, not for the benefit of the individual, but for the benefit of the body. And therefore, the spiritual gifts that God gives to the body, to you, are for the purpose of you serving Christ by serving the body. You have this gift and you exercise this gift for the benefit of the body of Christ. Now, when you have Christmas or your birthday and you have relatives and friends and they give you a gift, a lot of times those gifts are strictly for your own enjoyment. I have a brother-in-law who's a very, he's like the entrepreneur on steroids, and, and, and incredibly successful man. You know, and what do you buy somebody like that for Christmas? What do you give somebody like that for Christmas? I give him his favorite Christmas gift almost every year. And you know what I do for him? I smoke him salmon. Because he's such a type A personality, he could never, ever be patient enough to smoke fish. He couldn't do it. He can't do it. And he can't buy my smoked fish. And he claims I make the best smoked fish he's ever had. And he's had a lot of it because he doesn't care how much it costs. He could care less. I mean, this is the guy when the tornado hit his farm out in Oklahoma. He had seven airplanes. He was the one on the news when they showed that big, it was that, those were his airplanes on the national news. That was his farm. 450 acres, hobby farm. So he can have his own airport. What do you buy that guy? You buy him something that you can do for him that he can indulge himself. But you know what? It's interesting because his best friends he invites over and they put that salmon on little crackers with whatever, little capers or something, and he makes it last for a month. I'm like, how do you do that? If I smoke it, it's gone in two days. My point being here is we give gifts to each other, and we, this is a different way of thinking. God gives you a gift so that you can serve his body. Is that how you think about yourself and your relationship to the church? Is that how you think about whatever it gives, your money? And then 
I hadn't planned on saying a whole lot about gifts. Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. So that's the introduction in terms of the third use of the law. Let love be without hypocrisy. Well, that's a great statement. And then the very next thing is abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. I, I spent some time and revisited. I looked that up right before the service again. Abhor what is evil. That word abhor in the Greek means to have horror about something because it's so like offensive. It's so like terrible that you just respond like in horror because it's like, wow, that's bad. Abhor what is evil. I, I think we've lost because, because we live in a world today that is so tolerant and not just tolerant, but celebrates literally everything that's bizarre, perverse. The more bizarre, the more crazy it is in terms of evil, the more attention it gets and the more celebrated it is. And that's certainly the direction we're moving as a culture. We have lost the ability as a culture to have shame. There's no shame. I mean, if you were to go into... Uh, a visit like some high end where there's a models displaying clothing on a runway or something, or even when, 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 when artists come and they're celebrating, what's that thing where they have the red carpet? I don't know what it is, but you know, everybody dresses up. And I, I have a daughter who likes to look at clothing and stuff. You know, half the stuff is indecent. Abhor what is evil. Certainly as a culture, we've lost the ability to, we celebrate what's evil. So here we're talking about, let love be without hypocrisy. What's that look like? Well, it means that rather than celebrating evil, you despise it. And then it says, cling to what is good. And, and when you look that up, in your, the, the Greek is it's like being glued, cemented to something. Cement yourself, attach yourself, be connected to what is good. So that's how he starts off this whole discussion relative to the third use of the law. Without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and be utterly glued to what is good. And then, with that in the background, that introduction, he says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. You know, when I read this, because now you really have the spirit of the law here, being exegeted and explained by the Apostle Paul. And none of, all this is counterintuitive, all this is in opposition to our flesh. The flesh is always me first, right? But here, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Preference to one another. I think about this sometimes when I'm driving. Sometimes I find myself getting frustrated because if you don't tailgate going down certain freeways, well, people just keep cutting in front of you. You just keep, it feels like you're going backwards. So if you give preference to somebody, you're, you're viewed as weak and they just keep cutting in front of you. It just shows how different the 
this whole love without hypocrisy really is. And how, and how none of us do this in any kind of perfection. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Where'd that come from? I thought we were talking about brotherly love. So he inserts that to remind us that as we relate to one another in this way, we're serving the Lord. Remember what we said about the gifts? These gifts are given, and you exercise these gifts. You make use of them for the, to, for the, for the sake of strengthening and blessing the body of Christ. But also now, love without hypocrisy, as you do this, you're serving the Lord. You're serving the Lord which really is consistent with our catechism teaches in terms of sin, salvation, service, first use of the law, the gospel, grace, and then third use of the law. The law as a rule for Christian living. And we do it out of gratitude because you're serving the Lord. So, it occurred to me, I, def I defined the first use of the law, exposes our sin, Second use of the law would be common equity society at large. Third use of the law is specific to the Christian, a rule for Christian living. And that's what we find here in Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> now, here's the difference. Instead of striving to obey God's law so that you might secure a blessing, God's favor, we do this because we are blessed. It's the grammar of the gospel. We do this because in Christ we are blessed. And this is our response. You know, when you think about this through the lens, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. See, he starts off there. This is your service. So it would be gifts or love without hypocrisy. This is your service. And who are you serving? The Lord. All your life, in one sense, is a service to the Lord. The way you relate to your wife, your children, everything you're doing. I think probably the most, one of the most difficult things we find in this passage, look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But the whole bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. You think of Islam, and Islam is a very law-based religion. An eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, and in Islam, there's really no compassion, really. There's no mercy. That would be viewed as weakness. 
But here, bless those who persecute you. This is so foreign to our flesh. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know, I'll be transparent here. If the Lord didn't wound me and injure me through his providence with afflictions, I'd be a much worse person than I am in terms of having empathy with other people and knowing how to minister to people who are suffering. There is something about having experienced afflictions. Having walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Having dealt with physical infirmities and dealt with hardships in life. I don't know if I've ever met a humble person who was a highly successful person who didn't have significant afflictions in their life. I don't think we can handle success. I can't. I don't think you can either. I think we have a terrible time handling success because we are so hardwired to glory in ourselves. And in God's providence, you don't know how to weep with those who weep until you've wept yourself. Until you've wept yourself, until you've stood before a grave or whatever it is, you don't know what it's like. And the fact is that in God's providence, he loves us enough, and he's so committed to our sanctification and to his body that we might serve one another and learn to bear one another's burdens, that the worst thing he could ever do is allow you to be absolutely an overachiever and be successful in everything you endeavor without affliction because you would become just so difficult and arrogant and self-sufficient. I remember many years ago, I was sitting on the shores of Flathead Lake and, um, and the lady sitting next to me was an elderly lady. It was Dr. Nelson his wife, wonderful lady, and she's a Christian lady, and her home was open. She had Bible studies in her home. She was a wonderful Christian lady. Family I grew up with, and her husband is a doctor. He paid half my seminary tuition, and his wife never knew it. After he died, I wrote the family a letter. And she read the letter, and she went and met with my mom. She said, I had no idea. Van Kirk never let me knew, know what he was doing. And which raised questions. How many other things did he do? No one will ever know. The Lord knows. But she, she asked me this question. She said, Mark, why is it? I have all these doctors and wives in my life, and hardly any of them are Christian people. They have no need for God. I turned to her, I said, well, they can write a check for any problem they have in life, and they're utterly self-sufficient. Are they blessed? Is that a blessing? But she was such a humble lady. And she had affliction. 
and heartache. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. A long time ago, I came to the realization God must really like lowly, humble people because he sure made a lot of them. Most people who make up your average church, generally speaking, are pretty... It's not the movers and shakers of society. They're certainly included. God has his people among them. But by and large, the church is made up of pretty common people. Pretty common people. And we should never be embarrassed about that. We should never feel like because of our social economics that we have, maybe that we only associate with certain types of people. That's a very worldly way of thinking. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, Live peaceably with all men. You know, most conflicts are not due because somebody actually sinned against you or you sinned against somebody else. That happens, and that certainly, that happens, absolutely. Most conflict is about expectations. You have an expectation, somebody has an expectation of you, and you don't meet it. You don't meet it. I think I'm probably keenly aware of this, maybe because of my position, because I realized 30-some years ago that everybody who walked through the doors of the church had some expectation of me. And many of those expectations I would never be able to satisfy. And... Uh, the Lord calls us, as much as possible, be at peace with your brother. So anytime there's a conflict, you step back and ask yourself, is there something I can do to be at peace? And as you go through that process, you want to do everything you can do to be at peace. And then when you do everything you can... You can at least stop it and realize, okay, I pray for the person, but you do everything you can to be at peace. And at a certain point, you exhaust that. But you do whatever you can to be at peace. And sometimes, it's not possible. 
And that's really hard. And at that point in time, I think, you keep in mind that you're doing this as you serve the Lord. And you serve the Lord with an understanding that uh, you do whatever you can to be at peace. Unless that involves some type of compromise. But usually it doesn't. Usually it doesn't. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, I remember um, being a young man, a boy, a child, and I would read my Bible every evening before I go to bed, sometimes in the morning. And um, I remember reading this and trying to engage with my father, because my father was not a believer. And he would mock this. And, and he would tell me, son, if you want people to respect you, you don't do that. And um, I saw a change in my father towards the end of his life. And um, it's the grace of God. And there's nobody here. Our catechism says, small beginning. Small beginning. May the Lord, by his grace, continue to renew us, refine us, perfect us. Prepare us for eternity. It's all preparation for eternity. Let us pray. Father in heaven, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to understand the grammar of the gospel, the grammar of the Christian faith. Part of our problem is we don't, aren't always that motivated. We're not always that intentional. Because we don't always understand, we lose sight of how bad the bad news really is and how good the good news really is. And we're not always living out of that awareness and, and we're not always thinking about, we do this ultimately, if nobody sees, it doesn't really matter. We're doing this as a service to the Lord. Love without hypocrisy, a service to the Lord, exercising our gifts, our resources, for the benefit of the body of Christ, a service to the Lord. Help us to adopt this paradigm for life rather than the paradigm we would be taught, live the good life, self-indulgent. Have your best life now. Lord, help us to live as living sacrifices, we pray. Continue to reorientate our hearts and our minds that we might not be conformed to this world. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.